Hi, welcome to Chatting to a Friend. I'm Katie Friend and in this podcast I'm chatting to incredible women about their life experiences and adventures, as well as their thoughts on friendship, community, self-care, setting boundaries and how they keep healthy, happy and sane. Rosemary Brown is a little bit different to the adventurers that I often interview on this podcast, although she is very similar to one I interviewed a few months ago. She is a Canadian-born, London-based journalist and an author. She's a mad traveler. She loves traveling. She's got a hugely adventurous streak. Uh, But this particular interview is about a book she's just written. She is on a quest to put female adventurers back on the map. As she says, women in history should not be a mystery. And she has written a book called Following Nellie Bly, her record-breaking race around the world. And it was a journey that she undertook to follow Nellie Bly who circled the world faster than anyone had ever done so in 1890. She travelled all on her own, just with a Gladstone bag, and shattered the fictional record of Phileas Fogg, arriving back in just over 72 days. Rosemary was completely in awe of this extraordinary achievement and really was quite cross that this had not made it more into modern-day lore. And so she decided to set off and retrace the global journey 125 years later. This conversation is brilliant. We talk about Rosemary's background in journalism, her travels, her sense of adventure, and then we discuss both Nellie Bly's journey and Rosemary's in order to recreate it. She is a brilliant character. We had such fun. It's such a great conversation. And it's really exciting that she took on this incredible journey and recreated Nellie Bly's 1890 journey. Enjoy. Hi, Rosemary. Thanks for joining me today. How are you? Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. This is very exciting for me. So I'm fine. Thank you very much. And you? Now, oh, very well. Thank you. Indeed. Yes, very well. So we were just saying before we started recording, I had not realized that you were Canadian. So that's really exciting because I was really expecting an English voice to pick up the phone. Yes. (laughs) Well, I've been in England much longer in my life than anywhere else, but I seem to hold on to this North American accent despite my best efforts. I was, my family uh, immigrated, my parents immigrated to Canada where I was born. Mm -hmm. And then they immigrated to Florida Mm -hmm. where I spent some time growing up. And then I did what some people do. I like traveling, but I also wanted to know about my roots. <laughs> and yeah. so I came to England um, several times. And then the last time I came in the, gosh, in the 80s, I ended up staying. And um, of course, I go back and visit Canada and America, but I'm I'm here now and um yeah, so <laughs> I guess I'm about as British as you can get, except for this accent. My <laughs> blood is British blood. All my relatives are British. Yeah, and so what brought and what made you stay in the end? Was it a job? Was it career change? What was? What is it kept oh, you there? I keep keep guessing, Katie. <laughs> love was it a man? I fell in love. Oh, I, yes. yes. <laughs> right when I was ready to leave, and I by this time I was already thirty five years old, and then and with no intention of ever marrying, and then my soulmate entered my life. <laughs> Who's complete? And he's very British. Very British. <laughs> His career has meant that we've been able to live. um, We went to America and lived in Washington, D.C., which I very much enjoyed. Mm. And then um, I I said, David, I'm never leaving Washington, D.C. I love it (laughs) too much. And he said, he said, how about Paris? And I said, "Okay." (laughs) And so we had six, six magnificent years in Paris where... I now feel that no matter what happens to me, I once lived in Paris, so it's okay. You know, whatever comes next is fine. You're a journalist. That's your background. Tell me a bit more about how you got into that. How did you become a journalist? Um, The interest was um, the same reason that uh, Nellie Bly, the journalist I've written about, Mm -hmm. went into the um, field of journalism. I thought 
I, this sounds so corny, but I'm just going to say it anyway. I thought I could change the world with journalism. It was at the time of Watergate. And um, if you remember, Woodward and Bernstein had just broken the story. And uh, they actually came to my university and, and gave a talk. And that was it. I knew that's what I wanted to do because I enjoyed I enjoyed writing. I enjoyed the fact that to get a degree in journalism, mostly you studied everything else. And then just the last year, you picked up a few writing classes. So I had a broad education and I really did enjoy it. Um, in the end, I worked for newspapers and magazines and um, finished up working as a journalist for charities like Save the Children mm. and um, and Green America. So I was able to combine my passion for changing the world um, with with my writing skills. And so in the in a way, you know, I could never say I've changed the world, but I think I've been able to make some differences with my journalism. Well, you sound a little bit like uh, one of my guests who I interviewed last week, and she said, I can't change the world, but I can change the little bit around me. And I love that because I think that's really important. Yes. Same sort of thing, you know, not very few of us in this world are going to change the whole world, <laughs> but to be able to no. have some sort of influence for the better is, is, uh, is a good thing. Yes. And I also work, um, face to face on issues that are important to me. Um, right mm. now I'm very involved with, with asylum seekers here and refugees because we actually have, um, a hostile environment, um, for refugees and asylum seekers in this country now. We never used to, but they're having a very difficult time. And these are people who have fled war, violence, torture. Mm. And so I'm working with them, um, just trying to 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 provide support so that they can actually have a chance of rebuilding their lives in this country. I've also worked with homeless women, particularly, um, and working to support them as well. And also, um, um, I work locally in my community. This is all volunteer work, just um, like your. Uh, previous guest said changing the little things around me like we we uh, look after the neighborhood the conservation and the architecture mm. and just little things like that um but i'm not trying to portray myself as this amazing <laughs> uh, philanthropist but and well it's not money related anyway but it's just it's something that i feel that i was born a very very lucky person and mm. so i have the energy and interest in being able to work with other people, vulnerable people. I think that's extremely admirable. I was just having a conversation with my husband yesterday, bizarrely, uh, kind of on this subject. We were talking about, might sound a bit kind of gruesome, but we were talking about what regrets we might have if we, you know, if we were to die before our time. And we were talking, and I said, you know what, I don't think I would have too many. I said, I feel like I have had a lucky and good life and I've been able to give back quite a lot of that or pay it forward, whichever way you like to look at it. And I think it's such an important mm -hmm, thing mm -hmm. to feel like you have given to your community or as, to you, as you do to people who need safe harbour. Yes, yeah, safe harbour is a lovely way. Sanctuary in a safe harbour. Absolutely. Well, it's lovely that you feel that way, and I feel that way too. Because I—I I mean, <laughs> why else are we on the planet? In some ways. Well, I think so too, and it's not everybody's thing. You know, people can—you know—people make a difference in lots of different ways. Um, but I just think it is—I think it's good that when you can, you do uh, you give back, or as I say, pay forward. And mm -hmm. how did you mm -hmm. go from that mm -hmm. to? getting into exploration, becoming involved with the Royal Geographical Society and, and that sort of thing? Um, it was the my sense of adventure. Uh, I, mm. And also my, um, my goal to put women explorers back on the map. Uh, in fact, to put women, <laughs> women in history back on the map. Mm. Women in history should not be a mystery. And I mm. feel strongly that women in history are often a mystery. And so I was researching uh, female 
explorers and adventurers. And when I <laughs> when, when I found Nellie Bly, it was um, really she kind of took over and said, you better follow me around the world to put me back <laughs> on the map. So I said, oh, OK, Nellie. And she hasn't let go since because look, we're even talking about her here on your yep. lovely show. And you said today, the day we're recording, would have been her birthday. Is that right? Today is her 157. Yes, she's 157 today. But it's mm -hmm. also exciting because it's also the birthday of the Guardian newspaper here. Ah. And it's 200 years old today. And I love the, the connection with Nellie Bly being an adventurer and an explorer, but mainly um, a, a newspaper reporter. And the fact that they were both, both Nellie Bly and the Guardian started life on the same same day, uh, not certainly not the same year. The Guardian is 200 years old today. Tell us a bit about Nellie Bly, because since we've got there, let's let's talk about her. We'll come back to you in a minute. Tell us about her, because she sounds like quite the woman. She was quite the woman. She was born, as we, as we said, 157 years ago in 1864 in a little place called Cochrane Mills in Pennsylvania. And she then went to Apollo, Pennsylvania, just a few miles down the road. Um, everything was fine. She had her father was known as the judge. They had a beautiful he built a beautiful mansion for them in Apollo. And then suddenly he died. He died mm. when she was six years old. And Ooh. that completely transformed her life. And they say that his death is the reason that she became such a strong and powerful person. His death sunk his his family into deep abject poverty and there were 15 children yikes um, so they, they nelly nelly lost everything including of course her father and she watched what happened to her family which wasn't pleasant they they sunk deeper and deeper into poverty and they she ended up trying to get in a, an education but the money ran out and so she ended up working in um, really just almost like a maid um, until one day when she was reading the local newspaper. Now this is by now she's in Pittsburgh. So she was reading the newspaper and there was an article about how women should stay at home and girls and women had no place in the workforce and women and girls should really just take care of things in the kitchen and around the house. Well, this really enraged Nellie. <laughs> and she wrote a letter to the editor. She wrote a letter to the editor. And the editor was so impressed with her letter and the powerful emotion in it that he put an ad in the newspaper the next day saying, whoever wrote this, please come and introduce yourself. And she did. And she was hired as a newspaper reporter. And that was the beginning of her, of her newspaper career. And how old was she at that point? She was about 19, so she started quite young. And then um, she worked for that newspaper. She even took herself to Mexico to be a foreign correspondent. Um, and wow. when she got back to back to Pittsburgh, they put her in the women's section doing um, luncheons mm. and theater and, you know, marriages. And she didn't like that. So she took off for New York. And in New York, she pounded the pavement for three months before she landed a job. Uh, she was she was really right down to her last dime, as they would say in America. She then went to the New York world, slipped into their offices past the security guards, took herself up to the editor's office and said, I want to work for you. And she had an idea, but they didn't like her idea for a story. But they said, what would you think about uh, going undercover in the Women's Insane Asylum on Roosevelt Island today? At that time, it was called Blackwell's Island. And finding out how those women are being treated. Wow. Well, Nellie, Nellie immediately said yes. And then she had to do a lot of practicing to to look like she was mad that she was crazy so they would actually uh so they would actually take her into the asylum well she was so 
successful <laughs> and in looking mad that she ended up staying for 10 days. So she has a book mm. called 10 Days in the Asylum. And that's where everything changed because she, she actually, that event was the beginning of investigative journalism, which to this day does change the world. And so mm. she is the pioneer of investigative journalism. So that's her background. Yeah, she's she's got quite a bit. She's a she was a real tough cookie. She never took no for an answer. And if you'd like to know how she went from from, you know, doing the the work, the undercover work in the insane asylum, which, by the way, brought about huge changes. It really rocked the entire country of the of of America. Uh, people were shocked and dismayed and money poured in and changes were made. And that was really what investigative journalism is all about. But by this time, she had a very good reputation as a newspaper reporter. So one mm. day she went to her editor and said, I'd like to go around the world. I think I can do it faster than Phileas Fogg in Around the World in 80 <laughs> Days. And uh, the editor said, fabulous idea, Nellie, but you can't do it. Only a man can do this, he said. <sighs> well, you can imagine how oh, Nellie no. responded to <laughs> that, just like you would respond to it, Katie. <laughs> Nellie said, she said, fine, send a man. I'm going to the competing newspaper. Let's see who wins this <laughs> race. And so... <laughs> That's how she came to go racing around the world to beat the, the record of Phileas Fogg of 80 days. She did it in 72 days. Not only did she complete the circumnavigation of the globe in 72 days, she did it alone and she did it with mm -hmm. a bag the size of a bolster cushion. So she packed very few things. She wore the same outfit the entire 72 days. But just in case your listeners are getting worried, um, she was able to wash her undergarments and, you know, the clothing that went under, underneath her gown and her coat. So <laughs> it was all quite hygienic. But she was determined to do it. And she knew if she carried trunks and if, if she did anything else except travel lightly, it could slow her down. And she was determined. And she did it. Wow. And so did the the man that was racing her, did he go at the same time or was it just, did he do it at a different time? And Now, this is interesting, Katie, because they didn't ask a man to do it. They agreed that Nellie could do it because they knew when she said ah. she was going to go to another newspaper that she was correct and that she would win the race. So they gave it to her. They waited a year ah. and then they gave her three days notice. They gave her three days notice oh. and said, Nellie... Can you please go? Can you leave the day after tomorrow for your round the world trip? No. And you can imagine what Nellie said. Nellie said, I can leave this moment if you like. <laughs> but she did. She had a, <laughs> she had about two days to get her her things together to um, she had to buy her little suitcase. It's a called in England and Scotland and the United Kingdom. You would call it a Gladstone bag. In America, they call it oh, a yeah. sack. But basically, it's a carry-on. It's a carry-on. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, so she she had the and she had her outfit made by a very good um, a very good tailor, and then she was ready to go. And before she knew it, she was on the deck of the Augusta Victoria, ready to go around the world, never having been on a ship before in her life. Oh, extraordinary! And do you think was she was she ready for them to say go in two days? Like she didn't have to just start like with literally to get the dress made and everything in two days or was it? Yes, she? she did. Yes, she did. Wow. And she said, she said to the tailor, um, you know, uh, if you want to do this in the time that's available, I know you can. And he did. He didn't even blink. He, he did. And he showed her huh. fabrics and he he measured her up. And within a day and a half, she had her outfit, which is now iconic. It's now it was a traveling coat, a gown. And she had what they called a deer deer stalker cap, um, which she mm -hmm. thought was wonderfully English. And um, and her little rip <laughs> second off she went. 
And so she left on a cruise ship from New York. Yeah, like an ocean liner from New York. Mm -hmm. Well, yes, from New York. And she landed her first stop after eight terrifying days of terrible weather. She landed in Southampton. Mm -hmm. And from there, she took a night train up to London. And in mm -hmm. London, she only had four hours before she needed to to catch a, a ferry to France. And in those four hours, she had to go to the P&O offices to buy the tickets for the rest of her trip, for the rest of her journey. Wow. Uh, she had to visit the American legation, which today would be called the American embassy, because she had to mm -hmm. leave New York and America without a passport because she didn't have enough time to no. get one. And <laughs> and there's a cute little story. I know there's a cute little story about when she visited the American legation, which was very early in the morning. And uh, she was filling in the forms and answering the question. And the diplomat said to her, I have a, a question for you, but I see that um, that you have a colleague here the London correspondent for the New York world in London. Uh, his name was Tracy Greaves. And he said to Tracy Greaves, could you please stand on the other side of the room? And Nellie Bly said, there is absolutely no need for my colleague to stand on the other side of the room. And he said, well, I'm going to be asking you about your age. And Nellie Bly said, Come back, Tracy Greaves. <laughs> um, and she she said, I have enough, no problem about telling you my age. And she gave her her age and she sliced three years off of her age and made herself 22 instead of 25. <laughs> <laughs> so even then she was slightly sticking to the rules of propriety. <laughs> Yes, because it was a very Nellie Bly thing to do, but it was also a very Victorian thing to do. Women wanted to be mm. young. They didn't want to talk about their age. So I thought that was a great way for her to, <laughs> to a great little story to give you a better sense of what she was like. I mean, it was a fib yeah. and it was probably wrong. But to this day, it causes confusion because some there are quite a few plaques to her, and some say she was born in 1864, and some say she was born in 1867. So, yeah. so it lives with us today. Oh, amazing. And so then uh, I know that she then went, well, I don't know if it was then, but I presume it was then she went to France to visit Jules Verne, uh, the, the author oh. of Around the World in 80 Days. Yes. That must have been extraordinary. That was extraordinary. And there are only two places on the trip, because I followed in her footsteps, um, so I followed mm. her journey. There are only two places on that entire round-the-world journey where I knew that I was exactly where she was, and one of them was in the home of mm. Jules and Honorine Verne. And it was, you're right, it was an extraordinary meeting, and she had to, to um, increase her journey by two days. She had to spend two nights awake just to fit in Amion, it was not on her route. It was not on the itinerary at all. It was 180 miles out of her way, which in those days was wow. was further than it is today. But she was so mm -hmm. excited about meeting Jules Verne, the man who wrote the novel of the, the, the creator of Phileas Fogg, who she was racing against. And it was a wonderful occasion because Jules and Honorine Verne met her at the train station with a man named Robert Sherard, who came as interpreter, he was um, working as the Paris correspondent for the New York world. And they they traveled um, the few miles to Jules Verne's lovely home. And it was friendship immediately. Neither Nobody spoke each other's language. That's why Robert Sherard <laughs> had to be there. And so uh, he was doing the interpreting. But there was a... you. No, because you're living in a different country and I've lived in co different countries where you can't properly communicate, but sometimes there's just a mm. bond. Well, this was a mm. bond and they really um, admired each other. He, Jules Verne couldn't believe that this, what he said, little slip of a woman was going around the world, <laughs> but he, 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 he admired her and he and his wife, Honorine, followed Nellie Bly's journey through the newspapers the entire time. And when she finished yeah. the journey, they sent a telegram saying, bravo, 
Ah, that's amazing. Oh, that's made me a bit goosebumpy. <laughs> that's amazing. Um, so how did she, was she filing, was she filing reports as she went then? Yes, but it wasn't like today. So they were often way behind. And also I was saying that she had the English colleague, the British colleague, uh, Tracy Greaves mm. and Robert Sherrard, they filed reports too. They wrote about what she was doing because they'd actually been right. with her. And you will not mm. believe this, but those newspapers are on microfiche in the British Library. So mm. I was able to read everything. I read all the stories. My eyes have never been the same, but I couldn't believe <laughs> that I had access to newspapers from 1889 and 1890 yeah. right in my own neighborhood near the British Library. That's extraordinary. Because I was just going to ask you, actually, it was one of my questions I just scribbled down there. How did you find all this and how long did it take you to piece together? Was it reasonably well documented before or did you have to do quite a lot of digging? Um, I think it would be fair to say that it was reasonably well documented before because Nellie wrote a book called uh, Around the World in 72 Days. So I used that mm. as my main guide. And then Brooke Kruger, who is uh, um, an author and a professor in New York, she'd written the entire biography of Nellie Bly. And then mm. Matthew Goodman had written a book called 80 Days, where he followed in, um, where he traced the journey of Nellie Bly. He didn't physically go, but he used her book. Mm. Um, so I had a lot of good, very good information, but I still needed to do some digging and try to get a better sense from the newspaper articles and, and just wh wherever I could find information of where she went, what she did when she was there, um, and maybe her, and often her feelings about the places where she was. So it did require quite a bit of research, but I was very lucky that it was all at the British Library and in the books that I just mentioned. Talk, talk to me about your journey and your recreation, because from what I understand, there's quite a lot of the original the places and so on, just not there anymore. So how did, how did you go about it? And, and what did you find when you, when you went? Cause you didn't go by cruise ship, you flew, is that right? No, that's absolutely right. I wanted to go by ocean liner, um, but there's only one that still exists. And that's the, um, it's now the, it's, it's the Queen Mary two that goes from New York to Southampton mm -hmm. and back, but all the other, uh, all the other routes have disappeared. I uh, had to choose around, I had to put together an itinerary and I had to go to the places where she spent the most time. There were places I couldn't go that I regret, but I couldn't go um, due to foreign office uh, mm. advice. And uh, one of those was Yemen. And I'm sorry about that, but uh, it couldn't be done. Yeah. So I created a, an itinerary that took me around the world. And um, I, I didn't need to go to France. I went to France before that to visit Jules Verne's home, which you need to know, and I hope your listeners will know, that his house is now a museum to him, oh. and it's called Maison Jules Verne. And it's in Amiens, and it's fascinating. And to this day, there are memories of Nellie Bly there. They've taken some of her text and put it in posters and put it on the wall. There's a photograph of her so in 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 their archives. And so she's still there. Yeah. <laughs> Once she gets somewhere, she doesn't intend to leave. So um, I did that trip separately. And it's the only trip I did that involved my daughter and my husband. The rest I did on my own, just like Nellie, because I was determined to be as much like Nellie mm. as I could. Although, because we have such wonderful lightweight clothes these days, it was not hard for me to travel around the world with a bag about the same size as Nellie's. I had a rolling rucksack. Mm -hmm. um, so I was, I never had to check baggage because I didn't want to be, I wasn't racing, but I didn't want the chance of being slowed down or more importantly, having my luggage lost or spending all the time waiting to yeah. collect it off the off the baggage <laughs> wheel. So I traveled with um, one small bag like Nellie. Um, I flew 
would have loved to have taken boats, but I might still be there <laughs> if I had. Um, <laughs> and I used mostly Nellie's. I took Nellie's book with me. I printed out her book and took that with me and used that to to uh, to try to get a sense of what happened when she was in certain places. Um, after France, I went straight to Sri Lanka. We She spent five frustrating days in Sri Lanka because the boat was late. The boat that was supposed to connect and take her on to Singapore was late. Uh, so I got to spend five days in um, Sri Lanka, which of course was Ceylon mm. in her day. And um, we both visited the the um, Temple of the Tooth and we went to the Botanical Gardens. And so that that was very enjoyable. Then I went, we both went on to Singapore, which also was interesting, but it's completely different. Um, as you can imagine, it's, it's, it's nothing like when Nellie was there and it was really hard to find her there, except for the fact that a lot of the Victorian buildings um, still exist. They are no longer embassies and but they're they're now art places museums mm -hmm. and um galleries and theaters so that was lovely uh that was lovely to see and um and then then we came to hong kong which was probably one of the most challenging places because nelly sailed into hong kong on a monsoon i came in at the beginning of a typhoon so we both had weather <laughs> weather struggles in um, Hong Kong. And that was, uh, as I say, it was a challenge. The typhoon literally was arriving as I was. So I didn't have as much time to visit the places that she'd been to that I would have liked to have, but I managed. Um, I managed just fine. Uh, but but that was by getting up real, real early in the morning. Um, and uh, so so in Hong Kong, uh, I visited a place that she really loved. It was it, it was the cemetery, but in her day, it was a garden cemetery. And it still is, except that there's not many plants left. It's just filled with crumbling tombstones and signs saying, watch out for snakes. And there <laughs> I was at six o'clock in the morning, wandering around this cemetery. But Although it's not beautiful, she said it looked like a park in her day. It's no longer beautiful, but it's packed with history. And it's also very special because it includes all the just, well, six religions of the world all in the same cemetery. If only the world could be like that. So it was fascinating, but I have to say a bit scary. It was time for me to go to Canton in China, which is now Guangzhou. And Guangzhou was a place I really didn't want to miss a Canton because she had the most, probably the most terrifying time in Canton. Uh, but getting there for me was a huge problem because by this time, the typhoon was in full swing. It was at level eight with the stock market even shut down. There were no planes, uh, no airplanes. It, it, everything was shut. The, it had bolted down. Um, and I needed to go to Canton that morning uh, by train. And so I thought, ooh, what am I going to do? And so I, I went outside and it was <laughs> very, very windy, um, 95 mile an hour winds. <laughs> but I thought, what can I do? Because if I don't go to Canton now, I might never get there because I had some difficulty in acquiring a visa because I've worked um, with organizations on trying to promote human rights in China, which um, hasn't been very successful. But I had a slight reputation with the Chinese government. So getting the visa had been difficult and I didn't want to risk not being able to go. So I went out and I, I felt what was happening and I said, what should I do? Where can I go? Can I do this? And finally, I asked the only question that I could answer. I said, well, what would Nellie Bly do? <laughs> and so I put on my waterproof. I grabbed my little case and I walked through the uh, rain. And would you believe out of nowhere, battling the winds and the rain, a taxi sh 
taxi drove by, which I hailed. He drove me the three miles to the train station. I didn't know if it would be open or not. I had no idea. I was just following my spirit and probably Nellie's. I think Nellie might have sent that taxi for me. I'm not sure. Anyway, I got to the train station. It was totally empty, but my train was running. So I got to go to Canton, which was great. Um, and it was a wonderful train trip. There was nobody else on the train except for one person who happened to have the seat reservation right next to mine. And oh. I thought, this is so weird. I really just want to be by myself. I want to de-typhoonize. <laughs> I want to just chill out a bit. And here I'm next to this. He was very nice, a flight attendant for Malaysian Airlines. And in the end, we, of course, it was actually nice to have a, a companion. We were chatting away. And I looked up uh, on the luggage rack and I saw mm -hmm. his bag. And would you believe, Katie, it was an exact replica of Nellie Bly's bag. No. It was a Gladstone bag. Yep. Uh, yep. And I must amazing. have gone quite white because he said, <laughs> I said, um, I, he said, what's the matter? You, you're, you're, <laughs> you're, you've gone all white. Um, and I said, well, you're not going to believe this, but <laughs> you're carrying the same bag that Nellie Bly carried. And I had a photograph of it on my tablet computer and I showed it to him and he couldn't believe it either. But wow. these cases are now quite trendy, but, but I don't know about you, Katie, but <laughs> I think that it's not just a coincidence. No. And, and so the, you got to count on now there were, you said that that was quite, um, it was hard for you to get to, but it was a hard place for her to be. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Well, she didn't, yeah, um, she didn't find it quite hard because she had um, more tolerance than I did. But um, although the place where uh, where I stayed in Canton was beautiful, it's called Shamian Island, and it's, a, it's a, an enclave, it's a Victorian enclave that is, it's just like walking into Europe in, in the 1890s. Um, so it's highly unusual, but very beautiful. But the rest of Guangzhou or Canton was very uh, challenging because it's busy. But for Nelly, in Nelly's day, it was very primitive in that there were still execution grounds where they where they beheaded people without much uh, evidence against them from what I can gather. And there were torture chambers and there was a leper colony. And um, I did search very, very meticulously to find these places, but they've gone underground. They're not mm -hmm. there. Now, China still executes more people in the entire, than anybody, any other country in the entire world, but not in open execution grounds. Nelly went to the execution ground. There was mm. not an execution that day, but there had been one the day before, and she saw the blood on the ground, and she asked about it, and um, she was shown a few severed heads. Oof. Now, I just, I, I'm just, I don't know where she got that um, courage or how she could see these things and not write um, in shock about them, but I don't know. I, I think perhaps that she suffered quite a bit in when she'd gone underground um, in the women's insane asylum. Mm. It might have hardened her. Or maybe maybe in those days it was kind of known that these things happened. But And she went to the leper colony and they had to smoke cigarettes to make the stench go away. And she, <laughs> and she saw the torture chamber. And I was just like, that chapter was the hardest to write because yeah. I didn't really want to go there. And she described all the um, different forms of torture, which really are so oh, horrible. No. <laughs> I, could, I could hardly write it, but this, is, this was what she did. And this mm. is what other tourists did. There are guidebooks on, you know, visiting these places back then and other wow. accounts from other tourists of what they saw when they were there. But luckily, Katie, they were long gone by the time I got there. Gosh, yeah, that sounds pretty heavy going. 
Yeah, it was heavy going. Um, it was heavy going. The most exotic of all the places and the places where I perhaps, the place where I perhaps learned the most because the culture was so different. And remember, Nellie mm. knew nothing about these cultures. She was a small no. town girl, small, you know, from, from, from Apollo, Pennsylvania. And so she really, a whole world of different cultures opened up to her. And um, yeah. I think that's quite exciting and means that it was more than just racing around the world. She was racing through cultures and raising awareness of them. After China, I went, and so did she, to Japan. Nellie Bly oh. fell in love with Japan, and so did I. Nellie Bly was a bit snide. She was very proud to be American, and she really did always talk about how wonderful America was. And uh, But when she got to Japan, she said if she ever fell in love, she'd bring her mate back to Japan, and they'd live there happily ever oh. after. So <laughs> it was a real wow, departure amazing. from the usual, usual Nellie Bly. I found it gorgeous too. It was my first time. I have traveled uh, quite a bit before this trip, but I'd never been to Japan. So that was wonderful. And she got to uh, see quite a bit of the country. Uh, she sailed into Yokohama, which is still to this mm -hmm. day um, a, a big port and kind of the doorway to Japan. And she mm -hmm. went up to Tokyo I told you there were two places, only two in the entire trip, where I felt the closest to her. And one of them was in Japan, in Kamakura, because mm -hmm. there is a giant Buddha there. And when oh. Nellie was there, she got to go inside this Buddha and climb up through his body to his face and look out through his eyes <laughs> at the surrounding countryside. And I thought, wow. So, of course, I, I had to go to Kamakura and see this Buddha. And But I was delighted to find the Buddha is still open. And I got to go in. Ah. I couldn't climb. There were no stairs to his eyes anymore. But I was in his tummy. <laughs> so I knew... I knew, I knew that Nellie and I had were in the exact same place, 125 years apart. Amazing. You sound, in all the things that you tell us, you just sound like you had this real connection with her. How does that, how can you describe that? Uh, I guess because I admire her so much and I really want to get her back on the map because these days, especially with a pandemic, our comfort zones have really shrunk. When I did this trip, there was no pandemic, um, but people's comfort zones were already shrinking. Certainly not yours, <laughs> Katie, mm -hmm. but you know what I mean? This, this ability, feeling safe and secure rather than maybe fully reaching out to, to get your goals, to, mm. to do what you really want to do in life. So I was concerned about that. Um, I also was concerned that female role models, um, even for my 19-year-old daughter, were celebrities mm -hmm. like Lindsay Lohan. Um, I like to joke that we knew more about the Kardashian family than the families that lived on our street um, yeah. <laughs> because of my daughter. So there were a lot. Um, so I really wanted Nellie Bly to be out there as a role model for my 19-year-old daughter and for for all young women and women, all women and, and men, for everyone to show that if you really, really, really want to do something and you set your mind to it, you can do it. Now, you know that because of all the challenges you've um, triumphed in and you're going to do another one very soon, which is probably... <laughs> among the scariest and, and most <laughs> difficult in the world. So you're, you're out of your comfort yeah. zone big time. But I think a lot of us, particularly after the pandemic, we're kind of, we're snuggling in. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. and, and, and I'm very worried, and I was even before the pandemic, that people have lost a lot of zest. Yeah. And I want to regain that zest for them via Nellie Bly. Now, in terms of my relationship with Nellie Bly, the bottom line is she's the boss. <laughs> she, I mean, I am really literally following her. And right when you think, right when I thought, okay, Nellie, um, I've done what I can do for you and you're kind of on the map, what happens? I get 
out of the blue, an email from Pen and Sword Books saying, would you like to write a book about your Nellie Bly adventure? Mm. Where did that come from? Well, I, uh, <laughs> I mean, so it's like Nellie's not finished with me yet. So <laughs> I think, I believe they must have found out about me because I helped organize them um, at the Royal Geographical Society, a very male-dominated organization, as you can mm. imagine, but but reaching and opening up now. Uh, we we put together the first ever uh, conference about called the Heritage of Women in Exploration. Amazing. And we did a lot of publicity for it. And of course, of course, I did a presentation on Nellie Bly. Yeah. So, um, they, so so it's been a long journey with Nellie. She's still in charge. I don't know when she's going to let me maybe follow in someone else's <laughs> footsteps or write about something else. But right now she's in charge. Incredible. And so the book came out uh, just recently, <laughs> about a month ago. Yes, it came out on April Fool's Day. It came, uh-huh. <laughs> it came out on April Fool's Day on <laughs> the 1st of April. So the book is out and where can we find out more about it and follow you Are you uh, on social media or anything like that? Where can we find you? Oh, oh, this is very exciting. On the 10th of May mm-hmm. on Instagram at Pen Sword Books, they're doing a bookstagram. Have you ever heard of a bookstagram? I have not. No, well, this is very exciting. It's an Instagram journey about Nellie Bly. And what they're doing is they've made it geographical. So it's going to the places. So there'll be a series of, of, of blog bloggers that blog about books, and they will be reviewing the book based on um, different places along the journey. So it's all very exciting. And that's on Instagram and it's Pensword at Pensword Books. And it's going to be fun because they've got maps and they've got all kinds of little symbols and, and it really is going to be fun. That's May 10th, starting May 10th. And then it will continue until the 21st of May. Oh, um, very cool. I've been lucky to be in um, several... Isn't that cool? I never really knew about it either. And now I'm really trying to get up to speed on Instagram. Mm. Um, I'm excited about that. And uh, I got to launch it um, with courtesy of one of your other interviewees named Jackie Hill Murphy. Oh, yeah. She's brilliant. Yeah, yeah. She invited me to uh, be interviewed by her for the Royal Geographical Society, which I thought, wow, this is a good way to launch the book. So uh, we had a lovely chat, just like you and I are. And so we were, we're on the Royal Geographical Society um, event section. Um, mm-hmm. And on the island where Nellie invented and pioneered investigative journalism, which was Blackwell's Island at the time, but is now called Roosevelt Island, a, an installation is going to appear. Uh, talking, showing her life very creatively. It's called the girl puzzle because the Ooh. girl puzzle was the name of the first article that Nellie Bly wrote as a as a journalist. It's a wonderful installation done by a sculptor named Amanda Matthews of Prometheus Foundry. It's for me. It is the culmination of my of my goal, which is to get Nellie Bly back on the map. Let me just tell you what she says. Uh, she said, Nellie Bly told the story of others. Now we are going to tell hers. The best way we can honor Nellie Bly is to continue her great work. It would have probably been unveiled by now if it weren't for the pandemic, but yeah. it will be soon. And that's that will be when I can say, Nellie, I think I got you back on the map. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so extraordinary. I love that. That's brilliant. Uh, you were going to help me out with a, a bit of a challenge. Okay. Well, maybe could you just tell your listeners, or maybe they know already what you're going to do with the, the sable? The- well, anyone who's been listening <laughs> recently will be bored to tears with the fact that I am training for the Marathon de Sable in 2022. But for anyone not uh, who's not listened before, there you go. I am uh, taking on the world's toughest foot race, which is 250 kilometers through the Sahara Desert oh. in April 2022, all being well. That's uh, It's equivalent of seven marathons in seven days. And And let's just be quite uh, upfront about this. I am not 
a runner. <laughs> I am not someone who runs. I've never run a marathon. I don't do like, I'm quite sporty and I've done some stuff, but it, this is a massive challenge for me. Well, so my challenge to you is a Nellie Bly challenge. I mm -hmm. would like you to please organize a 72 minute intensive training in preparation for the, for your huge, huge challenge in April 2022. Lovely. I'm, I accept with pleasure and that's very exciting. I'm not quite up to 72 minutes running yet, but when I am, I will uh, incorporate that and I will let you know for sure. Thank you. That's a great challenge. I love it. And good luck. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so good much. <laughs> yeah, I'm hoping I'm not going to need it, but I'll take all the luck I can get. <laughs> Oh, thank you so much, Rosemary. And, and we can get hold of the book on uh, Pen and Sword. And if you are in um, the United Kingdom, it would be great if you could go to your local independent bookshop yes. and ask for it. Um, and yes, it's on the Pen and Sword website. And what I want people to get from the book is this sense of adventure, to rekindle their sense of adventure and the courage Take some of the courage that Nellie Bly will be happy to share with you. <laughs> um, and so you can, those that, not you, Katie, but those that have goals that they haven't accomplished or challenges that they would like to set themselves, just do it. And I hope the book could help you to do that. Oh, we all need a bit of courage. We all need to, to practice the whole say yes and figure it out later. Uh, that's a, a, a new mantra yes. of mine. <laughs> and I have to say, I've pretty much yes. learned that from all the extraordinary women that I've interviewed who basically tell me that every single week. Just say yes and figure it out. And so, yeah, we'd lo I'd love to borrow some Nellie Bly courage. And uh, yeah, thank you so much. Uh, congratulations on the book. Congratulations on the journey itself. And, and it's really, uh, it's been such an absolute pleasure chatting to you. It's been great chatting to you. And what I say when you say, say yes and just do it, leap and the net will arrive. I love it. And you're leaping. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Thank you so much. <laughs> you can have it. You can have it. Thank you, Katie. Thanks for joining me. I'll be back next week with another incredible episode of Chatting to a Friend. In the meantime, please give us a follow on Instagram, Chatting to a Friend, for all the latest news. Bye-bye.